You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today, buddy? Man, I'm really good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for asking. On this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the topic of race again. We'll talk with Amy Julia Becker about her new book, White Picket Fences. And we're going to talk with Eric Mason about his new book, Woke Church. Adam got one interview. I got one interview. We're going to kind of talk about it together. I'm excited about this. Adam, you ready? I am. Dude, here's what's going to be really, really apparent. You are so much better at interviewing people than I am. Oh, please. We all know that. All right. So let's get started. Hey, Adam, the topic of race is very, very common on this podcast. Just real quick for the listeners like that are thinking, again, we're going to talk about this versus the ones that are delighted by it. Like me, I love talking about cultural topics, including race because it comes up all the time. Yeah. Why are we talking about race again today? Why do another episode in this podcast about this topic? Yeah, no, I think um, in all honesty, uh, the reason we're talking about it is because it is at the forefront of our culture. I don't know how you escape it. It is a conversation that is ongoing. And honestly, the hostility uh, that has been building over the past couple years probably is is doing just that. It's building. And so yeah. if we're not talking about it, we're ignoring a big part of the cultural conversation that's well, happening What do you right say now. to the guy who says, hey, when you guys are talking about it, you're adding to the hostility. All you're doing is getting people fired up. And why do we keep talking about race? We, well, it would just go that, away if we stopped talking about it. Well, Adam, I don't think that's our intention is to add noise. I think our intention is to be a wise voice to say, how, how do we navigate this cultural conversation well. Um, And so my hope is not that we're just sitting across from, I I don't think we're, you know, Fox News or something, uh, uh, or MSNBC, sorry, fair and balanced. Uh, (laughs) Like, you know, I don't think that we're sitting here sort of yelling or trying to perpetuate a a particular argument. I think what we're saying is we need to be conscious about, um, on the one hand, the conversation that's happening in the world. And then what does God say about race, about issues of race, about peoples? Yeah. Uh, and how can we bring the Bible to bear on a conversation that's happening really in pretty unhealthy ways in the culture? That's great. I, I think uh, just as word of advice to those who are listening, the podcast format doesn't lend itself very well to Adam and I being listeners, except in episodes like this. For the most part, we're going to get to sit back and listen to a couple of other people share their stories from books they wrote, but also personal stories of their experience when it comes to race. So all of us, when it comes to a difficult topic, have the opportunity to start out in humility as a listener. Eric is the founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. He's the founder and president of Thriving, an urban resource organization committed to developing leaders for ministry in the urban context. He's actually authored four different books, including Manhood Restored, Beat God of the Punch, and Unleashed. And today we're going to be talking with him about his latest book, Woke Church. It's an urgent call for Christians in America to confront racism and injustice. We're here talking to Dr. Mason and uh, really um, excited about his new book, Woke Church. And so, Dr. Mason, thank you so much for your time. And uh, what I'd love to do is just start out by asking you, what's the premise of the book? What's what's the main argument? What are you trying to get at? Well, thank you all for having me um, on here. Love you guys. Love all that you do around the globe and excited to have been in partnership with you guys for over a decade. Mm. But... um. 
so basically, I mean, you know, the church, the, the book is called Woke Church. The subtitle is An Urgent Call for Christians in America yep. to Confront Racism and Injustice. And so within the book, um, I know that for some Christians, that scares the daylights out of them. <laughs> First, the word woke, yep. combined with church, and then, you know, just racism and injustice in pertaining, not injustice as a word, but injustice in connection with race. And so the premise of the book really is um, uh, really a challenge, an anthology, and I wanted to make it hopeful, although I wanted to broach some difficult subjects pertaining to um, our history and where we've been and where we're going. However, the most important thing was I wanted the gospel to bring about the hope, uh, and, but in order for there to be the hope in a resurrection experience, there also has to be um, some suffering or some crucifying that has to happen uh, so that the resurrection actually raises up something new. And so the premise of the book, I broke it up in four parts, is be aware, um, be willing to acknowledge. Uh, the third section is be accountable, and the fourth section is be active. And so under be aware, one of the things that we walk through is just what is this idea of why am I using the word woke, but then what's the biblical theology of justice and the gospel? And then talking about us being a family, how we should be fighting together, because it's a family issue, not merely a black issue, right? Yes. And then the second, uh, the second section uh, walks us through, you know, uh, some things that help us to acknowledge some challenges that we've had historically. And I walk through 400 years of body history that the church has had, particularly the white church, or the, I mean, we call it the white church, but it's seen itself as the church, yep. but it ends up being the white church because of the exclusion of the black church. So walk through that a bit, all the way up to the day, have some laments for us, and then second three, talk about accountability. Now that you've been made aware, now that you can, can acknowledge some things, let's be accountable of what needs to happen. And so I talk about us returning to our prophetic voice, cast a vision for change, and then be active. I get some practical ways that the church can do this, and then I take us um, to the eschaton. So we basically went through creation, fall, redemption, all the way through the book. That's I, basically it, man. I love how you outline the book. I love the outline of the book itself. It's 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 easy to follow the argument. I, I mean, like, it's uh, it's a great book. Uh, I want to start with uh, the question of the term woke and just thinking yeah. about, like, culturally, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I really, uh, I know that was an intentional choice, or I'm guessing it was an intentional choice, but... Uh, it was, you know, it was. Yeah, thinking, like, you know, the culture uses it a certain way, and maybe how are you using it? Like, help us a little bit, because like you said, I think some people are going to hear that, and they're going to be like a little scared or what's he trying to do here? And so maybe, maybe help us along in that a little bit. What's fun is the people that are scared and the people that are excited both pick the book up. So that's what's exciting. That's right. Yep. Um, yep. And so, and so my thing with the word woke, it, 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 it does have some cultural baggage with it. Um, but a lot of people don't know that the word, when, when Tertullian coined the word Trinity, it actually came from uh, paganism and, and mysticism. But the concept was so helpful to frame his systematic theology of the Godhead that he used it in um, his confession. So, so I'm not, because of the church fathers and even in the writing of the New Testament, I'm not afraid of cultural baggage if it brings attention to truth in a good way. Yep. So, when we, so, so the word woke is actually rooted in the word conscious, which was used in the 90s, which goes back to W.E.B. Du Bois' book, uh, The Souls of Souls Black, of Black when he talked yep. about the double. Yeah, the, the, the double consciousness of African Americans yep. in this country, how they 
have to see their perception in the white world, but understand their perception of themselves uh, in light of their perception of the white world. And so that word conscious has morphed from conscious, like conscious in the 90s during hip-hop era was conscious meant, yo, you, you understand your blackness and you understand the, the demonic, they would even use the word demonic systems of the white man, right? Yeah. And, 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 and so, so now it morphed into woke, which means just being aware. And so I use it out of Ephesians 5, 16, where it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, for Christ will shine upon you. In my mind, I will, because we're not just naturally aware, we're called to be spiritually aware as believers, because it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead. That's talking about comprehensive awareness, which woke is just another form of being awake. And so I, I, I feel like the church has to be the most wokest entity on the planet to comprehensively deal with any issue, but also our current issue of racial injustice. I love that. I love, I, I love, look, we have to acknowledge, I'm with you. We have to acknowledge that the church often will take, uh, like to start with your first point in, in Tertullian using this kind of Trinitarian term, uh, uh, and borrowing it from the culture. Like just be the, you know, the genesis of a word, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that Christians can't use it. Right. Or even a concept Absolutely. or an idea, like, Absolutely. like the church is involved in taking things culturally and redeeming them or, or using them to their Absolutely. own. Device. And so I love that. I love the difference maybe, uh, that you were describing in terms of like, um, woke maybe, you know, having this kind of consciousness meaning in the world, which is great, and we can borrow that, but also recognizing its its kind of uh, Christian um, uh, use there too, and saying m- there's a spiritual aspect to what you're trying to communicate there. And so I just think, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the um, really the deafness with which you use that word. Really, really awesome. Um, one of the first things, and you mentioned this too, I think it's so important, and maybe it's the crux of the whole deal. I don't know. You, you can help me out. But uh, one of the first things the book does is define what we mean by the gospel. And maybe more than anything, when we talk about, you know, this idea of what's really the gospel and what's a gospel issue, uh, this might be our biggest problem, you know, as we face racism and we face issues of justice is trying to figure out uh, what, what the gospel is and how it, how it's brought to bear. And so could you maybe talk a little bit about how it's brought to bear on justice? Sorry. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you're defining the gospel in the book? Yeah, I think one of the problems is, um, is, is, is that the way the Western world, and I'll explain this in a second, but let's just say this. In the book, I talk about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. You know, we know that's the content of the gospel. Mm. Um, that, that's what the gospel is, content. Christ died, uh, was raised on the third day. Um, we believe that the gospel is trusting in and putting our confidence in, in, in Christ's substitutionary death. However, um, substitution, and there's a lot of arguing going on right now about how the Western world views the gospel. But I'll get to that in a second. But the other piece is, um, you know, Romans 1.16, it talks about the gospel being the power of God. It's some of the nature of the gospel. Now, even though it contains the content there, in a way, it's really talking about the omniscience of God that's seen in the might of the gospel to change any type of person on every level of their life. And so Dr. Evans uses terms to describe it. He, he, he says the, the content of the gospel versus the scope of the gospel. I, I use the idea of what the gospel is content-wise and what the gospel does. So it, it's kind of two ways of saying it. One of the problems good. with, I would say, Western Christianity, and particularly 
the reform strand of Western Christianity is that it's focused on penal substitutionary atonement to a fault. Mm. Um, and I think that um, there is no like there is no understanding of Christus Victor, mm. which, to be honest, when you look at the kingdom themes of the Gospels, to be honest. Substitutionary atonement was only... Jesus kept that actually secret. He didn't actually want them to know he was going to die for the nation. Mm. That's why he said... That's why he would often not tell them that. That doesn't mean he didn't want it to be known. But at that time, he did. He said, see to it. That when, after the, the calm act of confession of Peter, he basically tells them, don't tell anybody. Yeah. What he just said, that he's the Messiah, basically. Right? That he's the Messiah and, that, and the mechanism by which he was going to use to bring redemption. However, when Jesus was on the scene, one of the things that um, you see in Mark chapter 1, you know, verse 14 to about the 17th verse, he, said, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And what, is, what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is ahead, it's within your grasp, Pentecost would say in his uh, synoptic uh, theme book. So mm-hmm. when, you, when you think about Christmas victory, it's talking about Christ's victory over the cosmic authorities, um, over sin, over uh, death, and... Uh, See, penal substitutionary atonement deals only with the, the propitiation. It doesn't deal with victory over the cosmic rulers that Paul spends most of the book of Ephesians talking about. Yeah. So the way that applies and works out in everyday life is when, you, when, you, when, someone, when the issue of justice comes up and someone just says preach the gospel, they're just saying basically, man, if you preach the content of the gospel and people get saved, then eventually they'll run across in their sanctification process through growing spiritually that race is an issue, yeah. which that's not even biblical. Mm. Um, because, that, because that means that you must treat every sanctification issue that way. We shouldn't have any letters or anything. We should just say, hey, preach the gospel every day. And once you preach the gospel in its content form, then it'll just change everything. But we know that we don't do that. That's why we have what's called gospel-centered theology. Yeah. So that we can center all of the sectors of sanctification in life on the gospel but really what they call gospel-centered theology is really what the Bible would call kingdom theology, yeah, and so, right. and which, which is more connected to Christus Victor. And so what I'm trying to get, to get to in the book is we're supposed to be fighting for victory that Christ secured through his atonement on the cross in how blacks and whites interact with each other. Man, that is deep. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think, um, you know, uh, you, uh, man, I, I just couldn't agree more. The, this kingdom idea needs to make its way back into our view of the gospel. In other words, the gospel, like, right, like, the, like you're saying, the gospel is, is almost kaleidoscopic in terms of the amount of angles you can look at it at. Right. Uh, and so yet yeah, the, the, the themes that are there, meaning yes, penal substitutionary atonement, yes, Christus Victor, Yes, kingdom. Yes, you know. And so, what what we never want to do is be too reductionistic. And when we see uh, 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 the gospel, like you're saying, as the Bible sees it, um, then then it has an impact. It has an impact not just on our personal lives and our personal holiness, but it has an impact, like you're saying, over the cosmic authorities. Uh, and, and man, I just yeah yeah that's a. Um, that's a uh, uh, that that was an awakening for me, really. I mean that, and I use that word intentionally too. But I also loved what you did with our biblical understanding of the family and how that can give us a framework for addressing uh, racism and racial injustice. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the things that I don't like in the race conversation is that we 
they, like biblically, there are only two races based on First Peter chapter two. Um, so we know that the word race, even of itself, is a Western construct. Is a rest Western social construct. It's not a biological reality. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, and it nor is it a biblical reality. You know, and so when we look at the idea of, um, you know, in Ephesians 4, they talk about us uh, attaining to the unity of the faith. Um, Ephesians 2, talking about us becoming one new man. One of the big things. And then, you know, eschatologically, it'll talk about in Revelation, you know, 7, it talks about our ethnic differences, but our unity as one people of God. You know, when you look at, you know, First uh, uh, um, Corinthians 12, it's one body but many parts i think that we 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 haven't done enough work on the practical level to really work through the familial nature of people who, no matter what their ethnicity is that there's a brother and sisterhood that we have in christ mm. and so one of the, one of those one of those issues is as i said i said i said and i i know sometimes it infuriates some african americans because they think i'm being dismissive but i said a black person if you have a black person who's not a Christian and a white person that is a Christian, that white person is more of my brother or sister than that black person who shares my ethnicity. Mm. Um, now, that's crazy, but biblically, it is the absolute unadulterated truth. Yeah. And so, when I thought, so, so, so to treat one another like family means if something happens to a family member, if I'm really a good family member, um, we're not talking about just being a good neighbor now. We're talking about being a good family member. Yes. Like this, this is whole next level. This is beyond being a neighbor. This is now time to be a family member. And so if I see my family members uh, swimming in blood and, and being broken and challenged by a lot of issues, um, then guess what, I would, guess what I would do? I would probably dive in and try to be of assistance and help big time for them in that particular situation. And so that's all that, I, that, that, that I'm exhorting in the book uh, in that section is, since we're family, let's treat this as a family issue, not like that's those people issue or that that issue doesn't exist. Because if something is in the life of a family member that I say exists and I act like it doesn't, that'll in impact our intimacy as family. Just like if my wife um, says something was wrong, but I say ain't nothing wrong with you as a man. And you, I think you as a woman just overdoing it. Well, I'm probably going to have some challenges in that marriage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. even if I e even if I don't think what she's dealing with is legitimate, I have to do something. If I'm a family member and if I'm a good cousin to address that particular issue because it's an issue for her. You know, uh, you know what I love about that is even the simple. It's simple, but it's 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 um, such a good move, and it's biblical, which is obviously you know uh, the, where we want to be. But that idea of there's something profound about that idea of of inserting that idea of family into it. So saying. Um, any Christian, regardless of their ethnicity, they are more family to me than than my own ethnicity, who isn't a Christian. There's something that like kind of upends the structures, the even the societal structures. You know, it has a way of just really um, centering the conversation on on something else, and and that something yeah. else is biblical and it's our faith. And I, I just. Uh, that part was convicting and hard to move beyond. And so uh, I wanted to make sure we definitely got a, um, 
yeah, I, I definitely want to make sure we got we got to that part. I wanted to ask, um, so I, I'd love to hear what your vision for change in action is. Like what, especially like, like so talk to my context. It's probably middle class, white, suburban being in Plano. Flower Mound is where I am right now. And, and that's a, I'm, I know you've been out here before. And so it's kind of that white suburban area. What, what's the, what's our vision for change? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a few things. First of all, the vision of change is in embrace the the multifaceted nature of the gospel. Mm. That, that's number one. I think that I don't. I think that um, it will kind of be a gritting and bearing it philosophy. If particularly, I would say white white Christians don't embrace a multifaceted understanding of the gospel. I can't tell you how many times people say just preach the gospel, mm. which lets me know how little their gospel is. Um, and so, and so, and so I'm like, nah, we, we, we have to run that scope. I think the other thing is, you know, a passage like Proverbs, uh, 31 verse eight and nine, becoming a voice for the voices that points back to, you know, in, in, in a later chapter, um, when I talk about a vision for change, one of the things I talk about is, is developing a, uh, um, developing a prophetic voice, um, and what the church needs to do in the, in that particular situation is to re- regain its prophetic voice, is to being a voice for the voices. And in this situation, among white structures, whites can use the glory of God in their privilege to be able to speak on behalf of it. Why is that so powerful? And where do I see that in the text? Well, it's right there because King Lemuel, which could have been a nickname for Solomon, and the queen mother could have been Bathsheba, mm-hmm. and her telling her son as he's preparing for king, uh, preparing to be king, basically, um, son, when you become king, listen, the tendency is to forget about people that that don't have your social status. And so what I want you to do as your mother is I want you to be, you don't have a voice for the voiceless. And we saw that he took that advice because he, he, he wisely dealt with that in some areas in the earlier part of his, uh, in, the, in the other part of his kingship. And we, we know that the longer his kingdom went along, he began to develop slaves. He began to go against his mom's advice. Yeah. And he began to even walk away from the Lord. And so we understand that privilege is a huge piece of anyone, any society. And so um, just as he was called to use his privilege and leverage his privilege for others, um, so uh, we, would entail, we, we would encourage and even challenge our white siblings to practically leverage your privilege um, for those type of things. So an example of that would be um, when, I was, when I first started planning, you know, I was able to raise some money, but then I'm going to be honest with you, I dealt with a lot of racism in the process of planning. Mm. Um, and, 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 and because people didn't think I was sound, even though I went to all of their schools, I got, I got three degrees. I got two advanced degrees. And I've worked and worked with uh, a lot of white evangelicals. But Matt, and at the time Mark and others, sort of had to leverage their privilege in order to be gatekeepers for saying I was sound in order for us to get into certain, certain circles and certain churches and get resources um, because they, many churches didn't have a category for a clown Negro. So mm. it's just interesting, man. So I think that those, I think things like that, which is sad, and then I think in the process, um, rebuking those who are too tight-cast African-Americans unless they are, 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 are what we would call Oreos. And I hate to use that word, and I'm not trying to be derogatory, you know, but sort of dark on the outside, but what people would stereotypically call white culture on the inside and so if I submit and put myself in the realm of appearing to be 
as non what people would stereotypically call African American as possible, the more safe I am as as a person. So I mean, I mean that's that's one way. I think another way is my dream. My dream is to have a is to have a national day of a partnership. And, and during that national day of partnership, my dream would be that um, a bunch of churches would shut down their Wednesday night Bible studies in small groups for a month, and that those those uh, white churches would disperse themselves into places uh, in the African-American churches on those weeks, and we'll have a time of prayer, a time of fasting, and a time of lament, and a time of engagement for a month. And then once a year, band together within that particular city to do something to fight systemic injustice within that city. Uh, I, I, would, I would just, that would just blow my mind. If we had, we have a National Day of Prayer, uh, uh, and, and now we have, I'd love to have a National Day of Fighting Injustice that the church does. You know, yeah, uh, that's a big vision, and I love that because. But it, what it takes is a um, it takes a certain kind of lens, right? And I, so you probably know where I'm going with that because that that is that yeah. what you're talking about there is big. But and I love this. The book ends right, telling us that. Um, we need to see through the lens of the end. And um, there's a sense in which we have to have that kind of lens in order to accomplish the big vision or to keep our eyes, uh, uh, to keep our heads up, you know? And so I guess I would, I would just tell us what you mean by seeing through the lens of the end and tell us why it's essential. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, of course, Revelation 7, we know that that is a, a passage that is, very popular for multi-ethnic churches to use of why churches should be multi-ethnic. I would say that passage has absolutely nothing to do with the multi-ethnic church. It, it really has more to do with the diverse nature of which heaven can be because of all of the different ways and different types of churches from ethnic churches to multi-ethnic churches, to traditional churches, to new school churches, old school churches. Uh, and, and individuals um, have shared the gospel over the years and how vast the gospel has spread, and 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 um and, and now we're all in heaven. Because people say, "Man, I'm colorblind. I don't see color." Well, heaven is going to be a strange place for you because there's going to be a lot of color mm. from and earth. Because it's going to be new heavens and new earth, and all the landscape will be vast and detailed based on the design of the eternal artist who created all of us in His imago Dei, His image. Mm. And so, to say that you're colorblind is to say that I don't appreciate how God created things. And in order to appreciate it, I have to act like there's no difference in it, mm. which blands out the glorious diversity of the massivity of his invisible attributes and visible attributes. I mean, and, and of his invisible attributes because all creation is supposed to show off things about God, mm. all visible creation, Romans 1. And so when we look at that reality and talk about um, looking through the lens of the end, all of us will have our individual tongues and languages. But what unifies us is even in those multifaceted tongues, languages, dialects, and slang words, we will still be saying the exact same thing, but in different languages. Standing before God and Jesus Christ, and in our new bodies, worshiping the Lord forever. So if that is the goal of the kingdom of Christ working to both be our, having had been our substitutionary atonement, we live in Christus Victor forever. Mm. Why wouldn't that motivate how we do now in how we functionally practice as we are working on the goal of partnering with God, to filling heaven with the glory of a beautiful kingdom that he came to come in order his will be done on earth. That, that's to me, it doesn't need, 
to, to me, if that doesn't motivate you to, to deal with overt race issues, I, I don't know what man, else. Am, so. Amen. Like, th- there's nothing even to add to that. I just, uh, that's it. If that's the picture, if that's the picture we're striving for, man, who could say no to that vision? It's just such a beautiful vision. And it doesn't mean that things aren't hard. It doesn't mean that, you know, there won't be misunderstandings along the way. But just the idea that we would fight for that vision is just so compelling. So, Dr. Mason, thank you so much, uh, really. Um, Guys, Woke Church is the name of the book. Make sure you go out and buy it. Check it out. So, Adam, that was a great talk you got to have with Eric Mason. Any initial thoughts since you've had that conversation? What's been lingering about that book, about the conversation you got to have with Dr. Mason? What's still sticking with you? First of all, I just want to say, um, man, Dr. Mason, he is so humble and um, hospitable and, like, just he was really uh, sweet to talk to, you know. Um, He's a great pastor, and so I I think it really, I think we can learn a lot from him. That's what I want to say. I've learned a lot from him. Um, And uh, some of the things he does are just so helpful in that book. I think about the way he was intentional about using this word woke, which probably to many of our listeners is either inflammatory or uh, they just don't know what it means. And so to use that word to sort of redeem it, right, uh, to claim it in the church context and to say, um, I want to use this uh, to get my message out, um, but in a way that wasn't, I, I, that in a way that, I th- in a way that was loving, I would say, was, I thought it was smart and I loved it. I love the way his argument is so linear in the book. Um, and, and I was just, um, frankly, from our discussion, just captivated by his argument. I think one of the biggest pieces that has stuck with me and I've been thinking about a lot is the idea of um, having too narrow a view of the gospel and Mm. how that impacts uh, how we might see issues of race, race injustice. And so I've been reading uh, a couple of years ago, I'll generally buy books and kind of like try to go through topics. And so um, a few years back, it was a reading on the atonement and sort of theories of the atonement. And even at that time, um, uh, there's a there's just a couple of really great books out there. But um, even at that time, kind of my view expanding, saying there's this view of Christus Victor, God uh, triumphs and and defeats death. There's the view of penal substitutionary atonement, which is the view that probably is the biggest and encapsulates uh, and, and drives all the other views from the perspective of the reform tradition. There is the ransom theory. There is, you know, some of these bigger themes that tie in exile and coming home and all these different kind of things that you can look at. You can look at the atonement and sort of bring all those things together. And I think it actually really behooves us to have a wide and broad view, not so broad that we encapsulate every single view. Uh, and, and we, I think we need to see, um, penal substitution as maybe the driving uh, theory of the atonement. But if that's our only theory, we actually miss what God is up to on the cross. It's not the only thing he's doing. He is defeating death. He is ushering in the kingdom. He is. And so to, to sort of to be reminded of that in this conversation with Eric Mason, it gives us a better context for how we're supposed to be living our lives now, you know? That's good. Um, it makes it makes us more than passive. And yeah. I really, really, it, it, I've just been really ruminating on it, thinking about it a lot, so. Man, that was excellent and very deep, Adam. Not surprised coming from you, but Man, you. you know, that's what I do around here. I know, you're the deep thinker, <laughs> and I just keep us moving. Okay. 
One of my favorite things about Eric Mason and that conversation, I, I love uh, his heart for waking up the church to something really, really important. And I think it's it's a very easy response to just acknowledge the truth of what he says. It's very difficult to remain awake to what he's saying, mm-hmm. to saying, I need to get beyond my own perspective. I need to think differently about this to see how the gospel comes to bear on racial injustice. And then to say, so I'll put my money where my mouth is and say something will be different about me than about our church. And so I want us to not just placate uh, his view by saying, okay, that's interesting and that's true and I believe that, but say, so what does that change about our church and and what's next? So uh, in that same vein and on that same topic, let's jump to our next discussion with Amy Julia Becker. Uh, A little bit about Amy. She's an author and a graduate of Princeton University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She's written about faith, family, and disability for a number of prominent publications like the New York Times, USA Today, The Atlantic, and Christianity Today. And so she also wrote this new book that we'll be interviewing her about, White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and I have recently written a book called White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege. In addition to writing books, I live in Western Connecticut with my husband and our three kids, who are 12, 10, and 7, so they keep me busy. Uh, And I do some speaking and um, a lot of running around to ballet classes and piano lessons and soccer games. Well, Amy, Julia Becker, I am so excited to have you with us today. I just read this new book you wrote. I just read it last night, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's honestly, it's not what I expected when I read the cover, when I knew the topic, and then I opened it up, and it just opened up this whole world of your story, your personal story. And the the book's topic is white privilege, but it really lets us get to know you so well. It tells me so much about your family, your kids. I feel like in some ways, even though we just started talking— I already know you a little bit. So uh, for those who haven't read the book, let's talk about this book a little bit. You can fill us in. You you wrote a book. It it talks about white privilege because your story walked through white privilege. It starts with you with with having a baby, with having young kids, with picking books for them. But start with us with this. Now, before we jump into all that, what what is white privilege? What does that mean? And how would you encourage anyone who's hearing this or, or has heard that term uh, to, to keep from shutting down or being defensive about that term? What is, what is white privilege? Yeah, so I, you know, it's funny. In the book, I actually don't ever use the word white privilege. I'm talking about privilege, which very much, I think, includes the racial category of whiteness. But I think that um, it, one of the reasons people get defensive about it is that there's a recognition that sometimes people use the word privilege to mean wealth and affluence. Sometimes people use the word privilege to mean what an honor, um, like in a completely different way. And so Mm. trying to think about what is this thing we call privilege, and I think of it as social advantages, unearned social advantages. And we have a lot of, you know, statistical data as well as just lived experience that says being white in America brings with it unearned social advantages. I mean, an easy example would be just... um, If you have someone, an employer, who's looking at two different resumes and one of them has what's considered a white-sounding name on it and the other is an equally qualified candidate for the job but has a name that sounds as though they are not white, the white-sounding name gets a callback twice as often as Mm -hmm. the other name does, right? So that's just like a good little example of how this um, white privilege can function. But I do think that um, we have 
privilege in different areas, again, whether it has to do with economics or my daughter has a disability, which is part of what has opened my eyes to all of these constructs and the way this functions. And so I think disability can be a form of um, not having privilege. And I think that can you can extend it to gender, to sexuality, I mean, yeah. kind of on down a long list. So that's what I mean by privilege is unearned social advantages. And again, I think it's very conflated with whiteness, but that's not the only way to think about it. Yeah, you, you talk a lot in the book about how um, your daughter's disability has opened your eyes to some of these ideas of privilege. Could you just unpack that a little bit for us more specifically? As uh, What are the examples of privilege that you recognized in having your daughter? So our daughter now is almost 13 years old, but she was diagnosed with Down syndrome right after she was born. And on the one hand, she was, like, born into this family that had, you know, plenty of affluence in terms of material provision for her, and we were white and educated and married parents, like, lots of things that were kind of setting her up for success in life. But also being born with Down syndrome meant not only did she have an intellectual disability, but from a genetic standpoint, her hard work was not going to get her to the same place in our society as my hard work. And I recognized that pretty early on, that this was not my success, so to speak, in life, which I had always thought of as just being about my hard work, also had very much to do with just, like, the genetic code I was given Mm -hmm. and also the environment in which I grew up, both in terms of my parents and education, um, as well as what those social things that I was talking about, like being white and being Protestant and um, that kind of thing. So I recognized all of that. And then on the flip side of that, it was like I had a daughter who was born into a history of exclusion and discrimination where people use language that is really demeaning and derogatory about other people with Down syndrome. Um, yeah. She, you know, decades ago would not have been guaranteed the right to a public education in our country. Mm. Um, I mean, within living memory, you know, and the same is true. She would have been institutionalized, or at least that would have been the recommendation uh, if she had been born 50 years ago. So lots of ways in which she was now a part of this history of, like, discrimination and marginalization that I had never been a part of. I was aware and cared about the fact that there were people who'd been excluded and marginalized, but that sense of my daughter being in that group um, was really a profound difference to me in terms of this not just being like an intellectual thing where I care about people who are marginalized, but like my daughter is in that population, and so I care in a different way. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That is uh, deeply personal and helpful and beautiful, and it is even more so in the book as you unpack uh, your, you and your husband walking through that, your, her siblings and teachers and people you interacted with. Tell us a little bit about uh, just the book in general. Why, why did you write the book, and what are you hoping to get at in writing this book? You know, it is so funny. I started this book and it, as a very safe and tame topic. I was writing a book about children's literature, and the experience of reading books out loud to my children. (laughs) In my mind, nothing to do with privilege. And then as I was writing that book, I recognized that, A, we had um, all of these books on our bookshelf that I was reading to our kids that were filled with white characters. And the reason that was is that I was reading books from my childhood to our children. And once I recognized that, I started to say, oh, okay, I want to diversify our children's bookshelf. But it led me down a road in two directions. One, in recognizing just a history of discrimination and exclusion within the publishing industry. 
But two, it led me back to my childhood in general and thinking, I've always thought of my childhood as like idyllic, safe, comfortable, just lovely. I grew up in this small town in North Carolina. But when I started to see that I was living in a functionally segregated town, going to a school, which as a kid I hadn't understood this, but a private school that had been founded because of desegregation in order to allow white kids to continue to go to school together, I started to recognize the way my whole life had been built um, and some of the things that I saw as so good and beautiful about my life had been built on injustices of the past and these pretty big social forces that I was um, certainly at risk of perpetuating with my own kids because I was just thinking, I'm going to give them my childhood because I loved my childhood so much. So it led me to all these questions and realizations um, that was kind of a domino through my entire life. And that was what really compelled me to write this book. So I came in through the back door of children's literature, which is not yeah. an obvious road towards a book about privilege, but that's how I got there. That is that I love the way you unpack that in the book too, talking about um, uh, calling some of your friends who were not white and asking them for their recommendations for books and how that led to even more discoveries about uh, how what they were exposed to and their kids were exposed to in ways that you were still trying to protect your kids from, and it was their everyday reality. Uh, one of the sections of the book, and I'd like to read this uh, little section here and ask you about it. You talk a lot about, I know you, you said you don't talk about white privilege specifically in the book, but obviously a lot of the privilege you talk about is related to race. Uh, one of the things you talked about in the book is your move from Edenton to Connecticut. Am I saying the right, Edenton? Yeah. And so you talked about that move and how your friends where you moved associated your your old hometown with racism. One of the things you say is, as much as I missed Edenton, now that we lived in Connecticut, I was beginning to understand why my new friends saw my hometown as racist. But the racism wasn't what they thought. It wasn't cross burnings and hooded robes. It wasn't violence or even at least in my hearing racial epithets. It wasn't the white supremacy of swastikas or vitriolic comments. The racism of my childhood looked benign. From my vantage point, it even looked reciprocal, as if everyone had agreed that this was the way it was meant to be. And you talk so much about that implicit nature and kind of the insidious, almost invisible way that privilege can create these. Can you speak to that a little bit about why this might be a problem that a lot of people don't recognize or don't realize? Yeah, I think, I mean, that was, for me, such a... um a lot, like a situation going to Connecticut as a kid and thinking, oh, wait, you see my hometown as racist, but what you think of as racism is very different than what my hometown was. And it took many years for me to recognize, like, this is a set of social structures um, that has led to a huge income gap between the white and black people in our town. And again, a sense of if you're going to stay here, then you're going to stay in your social position, which for most of the people in uh, town who were black was going to mean a position of either like um, poverty with government assistance or of hard manual labor, whether that was in a person's home, you know, cleaning or mowing the lawn or in a factory job. Um, But there wasn't, there was a lot of um, intimacy between individuals in that town. And so it didn't feel like what I thought racism would feel like, right? Where it's like I had black people in my life, actually, um, who are still in my life in some cases, where there was a sense of um, reciprocity and love and care. And yet there was also this incredible divide when it came to opportunity 
and assumptions about what your life might look like. And so I just started to question why that was and to recognize the history as well as the present-day realities that were keeping people um, where they were. And then feeling like um, kind of inverse forces kept me in like a bubble of whiteness and of affluence where it was like, I don't know how to get out of this either. Even if I see it as unjust, even if I don't want to perpetuate the life I've always had, how do I get out of that in terms of my social connections and the assumptions that people make about me in our culture um, and on down the list? So it felt like privilege was functioning in two ways, like one, to exclude, but also to kind of keep the people who had the privilege um, stuck together and yeah. and separated from um, all, all sorts of other groups of people, and again, in this case, um, largely African-Americans. So taking it from there to kind of the, the crowd that tends to listen to our podcast tend to be church-going people or church leaders. Why is what you're describing right there, the disparate groups of people experiencing different versions of the, the same town based on whether or not they have experienced privilege or not? Why is that something Christians should care about? Why should that be a concern for the church? Well, the really the conclusion I drew in writing this book is that privilege harms everyone. So yes, the injustices alone, I think, for people of faith, are we are called to care about. I mean, it's throughout our scriptural tradition, um, and certainly modeled by Jesus, that injustice is something to work against and to care about. Um, and so that sense of anyone who is being excluded from opportunity and from the same treatment under the law or under the social system is something that I think Christians have something uh, that we can offer in terms of protesting that injustice. But what's, again, ironic and insidious is that also the people who are supposedly benefiting from their positions of privilege, and certainly that's true on some, like, economic measures, um, but that group of people, like white affluent people in America, um, have as high if not higher rates of substance abuse, anxiety, depression than the general population. In other words, the homogeneity and the exclusion of that kind of privileged class of people doesn't do them any good either. It is harmful for everyone. And I believe that that exposes like a spiritual problem that really goes back to the history um, of the founding of our nation, where there's this big disconnect between what it means for all of us to be equal and then for that to play itself out in the legal system and in the social way in which we live as in these disparate ways. And I think that spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. So, yes, we need politicians who are working on these issues, and, yes, we need sociologists to do studies that tell us about the percentage gap between different groups of people and all of that, but we also really need people of faith and leaders who are people of faith um, to actually be helping on the spiritual healing. And I think healing is only possible when we admit that harm has been done and we name it um, and we ask for help from God in actually identifying that harm and in healing that harm. And then we participate in the healing with humility, with generosity, with love, mutuality. I mean, there's so much there to unpack. But I really believe that at this moment in our um, country's history, all of these issues are bubbling to the surface. They've been present, as I said, you know, since before our founding, but they're really bubbling to the surface. And I think that um, a lot of people outside of the church really want things to change, but don't have the 
tools and resources that people of faith have in these spiritual um, in the spiritual realm. So I think we have something to really offer to our culture and to our communities when it comes to healing and reconciliation um, and justice. And I so hope that more and more Christians will participate in that. That's great. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but first. One of the one of the things that we hear often when we bring up privilege, and in particular white privilege, is there's a response from a certain group of people, particularly people that have experienced white privilege, that their response is guilt or their response is animosity, saying I don't or anger. I don't want to feel guilty. You're trying to make me feel guilty. Can you speak to a little uh, to that for just a moment? Does does speaking about privilege and sharing your story about white privilege, if it raises up guilt in the heart of a person, or if somebody feels like what we are trying to do is manipulate a sense of guilt because of your story, what would you say to that person? How would you address that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, one thing I think is that there's a difference between guilt and shame, and it's probably important to identify what we conflate those words, or at least I do. So I think Shame um, is a pretty paralyzing feeling, and I do think that there are especially white people who feel shame about what they've been given because there's a sense of, I haven't earned this, and I get that, and I'm benefiting from it, and I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there's guilt, which is a sense of, not oh, I recognize ways that I've actually participated in this, but I still don't know what to do about it. And that's where I think, again, that um, the language of faith can be helpful in terms of an invitation to confession, to actually give our guilt to God and ask for both healing and clarity on, like, so what do I do with this? How can you lead me um, into something that is not as um, messy as all of this? So I think that part of why our defensiveness, either that kind of anger and um, defensiveness about the idea of privilege or the guilt and shame that can come. Both of those can be really paralyzing, and I really believe that, um, again, the language of faith can help us to move from those positions. I also will say I think some of that defensiveness and anger and that sense of manipulation comes when people are not acknowledging. So there are plenty of people who have, for example, white privilege, but who have had very hard lives. Yeah. And that might be because they don't have the privilege of affluence or, you know, they've had other experiences, they've got disability, you know, et cetera. Um, It also might be, like, I was talking with someone about this book, and she said, you know, what I'm realizing is that I am privileged, but I do not feel privileged. And she came from a really dysfunctional family where her parents had gotten divorced, there was substance abuse, there were eating disorders, and she's like, I now recognize that the fact that I was white and had wealth got me to a place in life that I wouldn't have been if I hadn't had that wealth or if I had been from a different racial or ethnic, you know, community, et cetera. But that feeling of privilege and that experience of this social definition of privilege can be really different. And so I think that's where some of that defensiveness comes from. Either I don't feel privileged at all or I've worked really hard. Like this doesn't feel like it's not earned. And how can you tell me that it is? So it's just, It's complicated and murky, and if we don't give people a space to actually say and tell their stories and speak from their own experiences, then what we're really doing is just silencing that, and I think that means we don't move forward and we just end up in these paralyzed corners um, where we're not, yeah, where we end up polarized and not getting anywhere. 
Yeah, well, I think what you just shared, I've heard many times from from many people saying, if if white privilege is a thing, then why was my life so difficult? Or if white privilege is a thing, then how come I had to work so hard for everything I have? And I, I do think there there's a little bit of both, though. There's um, an opportunity there for people to realize uh, both v- different variations and versions of privilege that we might have experienced. And at the same time, talking about white privilege does not mean that every white person has had an easy life. That is not what we're trying to, not what you're trying to say, that if you're white, then life has been nothing but rainbows and roses. But there is still an acknowledgement that uh, being white in our nation or, or being wealthy in our nation comes with certain advantages that you may not have earned. They just come naturally to you because of the the systems that are in place. So, how, if somebody is not if somebody's listening to this and saying, "No, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I'm privileged," or uh, what have you seen maybe with your friends or with other people who've read your book that has helped them wake up to the realities of privilege that maybe they're unfamiliar with or have not experienced? Well, I do think a lot of it is um, in the acknowledging what has been hard, like being willing to kind of name that and recognize it, but then also kind of imagining, okay, so if I had the same life experience and I was had immigrated from a different country, or if I had the same life experience and I was born with, you know, African-American parents, I was black, like if I had the same life experience and you add... All these different factors, you start to realize, wow, it would have been even harder. Like, yeah. it, and it doesn't mean that what I've experienced wasn't hard. It just means, gosh, it would have been even harder. Yes. And so I think what's important also in all of this is naming what we are able to be grateful for um, and what we also can grieve over. Like, I'm really grateful for the stability and safety of my childhood, even as I grieve over the fact that it was built upon a group of um, beautiful, hardworking people who did not have the advantages that I had. So trying to hold on to both those things, I think giving people permission to look at their lives and not think, I either need to condemn myself or I need to celebrate my life and say, I worked hard and that's how I got here. You know, it's like there's a... a, um, a subtlety and a complexity to who all of us are and to all of our stories. Um, and there are advantages that many of us have been given, you know, and other ways in which our lives have been hard. And trying to name those things um, honestly and give people space to do that, I think, is um, part of what helps uh, there be a sense of freedom in saying, oh, I see that I did benefit from privilege in these ways. I can actually feel, I feel grateful for that in some of it, and I feel grieved by that in these other areas um, at the same time. That was a that was a very wise and helpful response. I think that was great. As we conclude, can you just, uh, for our listeners, for me, what are some next steps that as an individual Christian or as corporately as a church that we can be doing to address privilege? I do think um, that our, like, especially from white culture, our instinct is to say, how can we fix this, like, yesterday? (laughs) That's definitely my instinct is like, okay, I know this is a problem. I know what to do because I am from a group of productive people who fix things, you know? And um, I actually think the first step is a lot of listening, prayer, um, and humility. Um, The second thing is, connecting to other people who are in a um, similar space. So connecting to other people who are thinking about these things, and especially if they're people of faith, to be praying together, because 
I do believe that um, the church is, like, we are experiencing God's power at work when we are doing that together more than when we're doing it individually. I then think having, um, developing relationships, both in terms of friendship, like kind of um, horizontal relationships, and also looking for mentors who are not from your social group. So that might be like racial and ethnic, or again, even with people with disabilities, um, that sense of somebody who's outside of your fence line, having relationships that help you understand, again, more on that heart level and experiential level of what it's like and being taught. Um, in my case, writing this book, I had an older um, African-American woman who was really mentoring me. She wrote the foreword for the book, Patricia Raybon, um, through the process of thinking through some of these things. Um, and then looking at what are ways that I can, with love and humility, respond with action. So it's not that I don't think action is important. I do think it is. But I think that there's a lot of work of um, seeing where we are, asking God for his guidance and leading in both confession and then ultimately in that action uh, that we can take in the world, which often is going to start small. I mean, for me, it was like as kind of small as changing the books on our bookshelf um, or adding to the books on our bookshelf uh, and making sure that when we were in Washington, D.C., we went to the Martin Luther King Memorial in addition to some of the other ones. I mean, there were small steps, but small steps often lead to greater awareness and to starting to see not just individual things, but also structural things. Where are there areas that I have relative power? Um, so if I'm on a local community board for, or, you know, an elder board at a church or some position of leadership in my community, starting to ask questions about, you know, how does privilege function in this space, and maybe we can make that um, different in the future. How can we make that different? So, again, I think it's a really long process. Um, and it does not happen easily, but it begins with um, prayerful conversation and connection with other people about these topics, um, and really waiting for God to um, direct and lead towards both individual and collective, more systemic action. Well, I think that was a great answer, and in addition, I just want to add, one of the other things somebody might do is pick up your book, White, White Picket Fences. Uh, the subtitle is Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege, and it's a great place for somebody to start if you are wondering, uh, what is this privilege they're talking about, or how can I be more aware, what can I do about it? Amy Julia Becker, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you so much for sharing your story through this book. Thanks, Adam. It was really great to talk with you. Thank you. Adam, that was excellent. Um, what are your what are your initial reactions coming out of that conversation with Amy Julia Becker? You know, one of the big things, and this was from the beginning of the interview with her, I had, every time she said privilege, I had in my mind put the word white with it. And she pointed out that she never once in her book says white privilege. Mm. And to me, there was something there, kind of like an, an implicit awakening to go, oh, did I did I put that there? I made, I made her book about just her race, but it was also beyond that. It was about socioeconomic. It was about ableism. And in some senses, I made privilege um, narrower than mm. her definition. Mm. And certainly it has to do with race, but it also has to do with more than just that. Uh, and, and distinctly, her book is about race. And it does talk about how she's awakened to some things by looking... Uh, at the the books her children reads and, and talking to some of her neighbors about it, but it's it's also about her um, her daughter who struggles with disability, and it's also about uh, how they're well off uh, compared to other people. And there's there's just a world of privilege that I think most people who 
uh, or all of us, I guess, have some forms of privilege that we are blind to, and yeah. it is invisible to us. And so similar to what we talked about with Eric Mason and Woke, there's a uh, an awakening to realize, where am I not even aware mm. of the advantage I have over somebody else because of who I am, where I come from, the language I speak, uh, the education I've received, the finances I have, and how should that breed in me a compassion for those people with uh, without the same advantage or help me in, in the gospel realize the reason the Lord has equipped me is not with a bunch of things to terminate on me and celebrate me, but rather the reason I might be uh, in, endowed with wealth or strength or whatever privilege might be to serve others. And then if there's any unjust privilege that I am the beneficiary of, to be part of seeing a systemic privilege maybe done away with or fought against and seeing how uh, not just taking advantage of my privilege for the sake of my family or for other people, but seeing it it put away. So uh, I I was challenged by the book. Obviously, her story was beautiful, and just reading it like a memoir was was really really great. It's hard to challenge somebody else's experience and say, "Well, that's that's not true," because it it just it, she's just sharing what actually happened to her. Yep. So knowing these two books, and they're not exactly the same, but they have a, a, kind of a beautiful pairing. I'm glad we did them both in one episode together. Mm-hmm. What what do you think the Christian walks away with from from hearing about privilege and from hearing about how a church should be more aware of racial injustice? How does that come back to the gospel? And why should it matter? You know, I my hope is that what they walk away from with these two um, books, these two topics, would be a greater capacity for love. Good. I I just if you hear it and it makes you angry, if you hear the word privilege and it makes you angry, if you hear this word woke and woke church and you're like, what is this about? You know, what's this virtue signaling? Like if those are the yeah. kind of things that are sort of popping in your head or even just a defensiveness, um, you know, my hope is, is that you would listen, that, that you would listen, learn something, and then your capacity for compassion and love of other people would increase. Um, that's what I want. Right, that's what I want for myself. As I enter these conversations, I'm going, "What's my what's my capacity for love, and how can it increase?" And here's what that means: it doesn't mean we compromise truth. It doesn't mean we compromise on our convictions. I think what it does, though, is it allows us to see. Um, um, so the the idea of uh, seeing other people flourish. Gosh, we should all want that. We should all want that. And if that means recognizing that in some areas of our life we have a privilege, okay. That, great. You know, well, I don't have to be threatened by that because ultimately I'm secure in my faith in the Lord and I'm secure that the privilege I get from being a Christian, which is means I'm unconditionally loved by God, is not one that's kept from other people. In other words, I can extend that same offer to them, uh, the offer of grace and love and point them towards Christ. It's a privilege that we're actually all able to walk in if we submit and surrender our own lives. And that's like really awesome and beautiful. That's actually a really hopeful thing. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. We'll see you next time. God bless. Thanks for listening.